Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and welcome to July's Monthly Roundup. Joining me today is data reporter, Alicia Hagopian, and senior investments reporter, Nicola Blackburn. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. So I think the first thing to talk about uh, from last month is of course, the implementation of consumer duty. Uh, this, date, this date was uh, Monday the 31st of July. Uh, so I think the biggest thing for us in the last month was seeing how firms have reacted to it, what firms are going to be doing to it, and how it will change the fundamental structure, really, of how a lot of firms will work. Um, you know, we've seen already that um, SJP may have to look at a lot of their fee structures. Um, have you seen much, um, Nicola, about how they're how they are restructuring and how they've been impacted by it? Yeah, I think I think um, with this, I would stress. Um, that SJP hasn't, uh, from what we've covered, hasn't made a concise link between consumer duty and the actions that they're taking with their fees. But it just so happens that in the past month, they have um, uh, sort of made two changes to how they run their business and assess value that are both based on fees. And I think it's interesting given the like impending um, implementation of the consumer duty. Um, Just very, very briefly, one of them is they've introduced a charge cap on investments held for over 10 years. Um, Normally they would charge an investment management fee of 100 basis points and they've taken that down to 85 basis points. Um, We just don't see this kind of thing from SJP often where they're reducing charges. So this was quite significant. This was um, announced in their results last week. The other thing was um, all asset managers need to introduce an assessment of value report, sorry, publish an assessment of value report every year where they um, demonstrate how their investment products are delivering value. And if they're not, they have to disclose what they're going to do to change it. This is like a regulatory, um, a mandatory thing from the regulator. Um, And SJP said that for the first time, they're going to start introducing, they're going to start judging performance, factoring in the impact of advice fees um, on fund performance. So again, just like thinking more about yeah. the effect of, of their fees. This really could be the start of some significant changes in the industry. Or who knows, it could be. Have you seen much, Alicia, about how advisors themselves in general are reacting to it? How much they are and or aren't concerned about consumer duty? Um, well, we haven't seen that much. But so last week was the consumer duty deadline mm. and there was some... Aviva research published, which showed that um, consumer duty wasn't in the top 10 of advisors' concerns at that moment. And, you know, with these surveys, I mean, you always have to take some things with a pinch of salt, but there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of factors that were ranked a lot more highly. For example, um, the issues of inflation and cost of living crisis for their clients. So I think it's interesting that that advisors are not as worried as we might have expected. And that could be for two reasons. I mean, that could be because advisors are actually very well prepared and have no concerns Mm. about how their business will be affected, but it can also be because advisors are not taking consumer duty seriously. So I think, you know, only the next few months will start to show us which one of those it is really. And I suspect it's a combination of both. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess you're absolutely right in that last point of the next few months will really just show us which one of those it was, right? Um, and also because it's up to the regulator now, the onus is fully on them now to, uh, you know, take action on firms who haven't mm. taken it seriously. Um, but yeah, no, that's a fantastic point. Do you see any difference in terms of the size of firm with this, or is it pretty much open with the data? I think it was this month that the FCA actually pointed out that they will be honing in on small advice firms 
when it comes to consumer duty. I think it was really interesting that, um, I think it was the CEO of the FCA that said that in a, in a meeting with the treasury. And I think it's interesting that they called out the small firms because there's been a lot of talk of they're gonna go for the big boys first really, uh, which, which would make sense also because of the impact that they can have on clients. But I think it's a reminder to even the one, two man IFAs mm -hmm. that you have to keep your standards high because they'll be going for them too. And not in a way of a threat, but I think, you know, it's easy with thousands and thousands of advisors across the UK to have people slip through the cracks. But hopefully that's not what's going to happen with this regulation. Mm, I, I, yeah, that's an important point. And I also think that generally with um, regulatory demands on advisors you know a lot of advisors sell up because one of the and one of the key reasons they have for selling up is because of an increased burden of regulatory demand which of course the fca are keen to avoid with consumer duty but of course you need to marry that with an increase of demand um mm -hmm. so i think that'll be quite interesting away from advisors alicia do you see um many implications for platforms as well um in terms of consumer duty in terms of con in terms of consumer duty so uh platforms that are replatforming and how that will how that will go with the new rules um yes so we did an interview with jenny davidson um who is at quilter and they've just gone through a huge replatforming process in the i mean it took eight years i think something like that and a lot of changes they changed who they would be replatforming with and it was interesting. I mean, they, they really spoke about a lot of the benefits that have come with that, that new platform. But also they warned that, you know, there's a lot of risks that come along with it. And with consumer duty, I think they made a really good point of now, if you have a platform that's not delivering under consumer duty, mm. but to the extent, for example, that clients can't access their money for a few days, are you causing foreseeable harm? And I think that will be a really interesting question. And not just for platforms, actually, for providers, Mm. overall because we, there's been a lot of conversations about providers role in consumer duty and i think that where providers and platforms and anyone else in the value chain is causing barriers to clients accessing their cash that will present a really big problem um but yes it's very interesting where fees are going to be going and how that will affect the acquisition market um will prices change as a result of prospective fee increases or so what i hear a lot of um with acquisitions is I hear a lot of um, prospective buyers say, well, where's the value for me here? So forget about consumer duties, focus on value. Where's the value for me in terms of buying this business? And for some, some would argue that for a lot of consolidators, the value is simply in fee, fee, fee hikes, really, to be honest. Um, so it's interesting to see where that's going to go. Um, and also how we're going to um, have, how we're going to see that in the market going forward. Um, you know, also, we won't get into this today, but also, you know, uh, myself and Alicia and, and Deputy Editor Jack Gilbert had a fantastic update to our private equity database, um, which as that ha continues on a monthly basis, we'll be actively tracking those acquisitions to see if this is making a difference. That's really interesting. That's really, really interesting. So I also think that um, a massive story in the last month was, of course, the the closure of Aberdeen's flagship gas fund. Um, Nicola, talk us through that a little bit um, and what that means for the industry. Sure. Um, so Gaz, uh, everyone listening, I think, will have at least heard of Gaz. Um, it was essentially a very, you know, it's complicated to explain how it worked, and I'm not going to try. The hedge fund strategy, essentially, um, and. Uh, Citywide Chairman Lawrence Lever um, 
wrote a big piece about why Gars failed and he explained uh, why very succinctly I think he said put simply it was supposed to be lots of good investment ideas of smart people at standard life well executed and put together in a portfolio if the ideas were good Gars did well poor judgments on the other hand would lead to poor results the fund also got uh, extremely big which he discusses as well um what it means for the industry I mean um it's it's really just, I mean, it was by far the biggest uh, in size and also in name, I think, absolute return fund. Um, so for funds in that sector, you know, it was a it was a it was a real failure. And I think some would argue really tarnished that sector um, following the failure. Um, New model advisor spoke to some advisors um, who said that over the past few years, they really tried to diversify their alternatives exposure and look at sectors like not just absolute return funds but look at you know other alternatives like investing in um you know one of them mentioned like a forestry fund um you know all these kinds of other investments things like property and uh infrastructure um so you know it's it's clear that there's been a bit of a shift i think as well in perception of how useful absolute return funds are and mm. and um they were clearly glorified back in the day when gas was at its peak and yeah. now maybe not so much. I think it's I think it's hugely um, interesting. I mean, in the piece, uh, which obviously, as you've just had, I encourage everyone to read because it is fantastic. Um, Lawrence talks about how in the early days of Standard Life Investments, um, he kept getting told that events to always refer to investments. And that reflects the focus um, that SLI had on, you know, this massive investment thing, which is going, which of course, as Lawrence outlines, you know, when Gas Fund was going great, is great, but they, there's no backup plan there for mm. the broader company as well. Um, and it's interesting, this history with Standard Life, um, you know, I mean, we've also had a, quite a few Aberdeen stories come out uh, last month. And as at the time of recording, uh, their results are tomorrow. So we'll also have a clearer idea after tomorrow. Um, but those, those unfortunately, uh, it has Aberdeen has been plagued with issues recently, and it's going to be interesting where they go moving forward. Um, so they've had um, a variety of issues with their platform wrap um, due to major upgrades that some would say replatforming. Um, I think they call it upgrades, um, and uh, I mean those stories are always quite interesting because as soon as you ask advisors around, very simply. How's it going with the platform that you're using? What you tend to find is that advisors tend to act as one community. <laughs> and when one person tells you one thing, chances are about five or 10 people are saying the same thing, mm. um, which is quite interesting from a journalist's perspective. But what's really interesting with Aberdeen at the moment, I think is their financial planning business. Um, it's unfortunately fair to say that it's not going very well. Um, you know, they've impaired the value of it by 28 million pounds. So they essentially said that they're not going to get, and that's due to valuation expectations on the business. So really losses and outflows, um, which is why they're really just pivoting toward their interactive investor, which they bought a couple of years ago, the digital the investment platform. Um, but yes, it, it's, it's very interesting from a broader sort of um, life insurer slash sort of banks getting involved in IFAs and the acquisition market generally. Um, we seem to see this every few years of sort of your classic life insurers, your Avivas, your Abdeens or whatever, getting involved in financial planning. And Abdeens historically always been involved in financial planning. Um, and a lot of a lot of what I've been hearing is also that a lot of people were hired from Aberdeen or rather moved from Aberdeen to run their advice businesses who didn't necessarily have advice experience. 
which is also quite interesting. Um, and I think a trend that we've certainly seen historically. Um, but like I say, at the time of recording, results go out tomorrow. So um, by the next mentally roundup, I'm sure we'll have a clearer idea of what is actually going on at Aberdeen. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that, Zach. And something that I'd like to ask us as well, I think, you know, because of the scale of Aberdeen's financial planning arm, um, I mean, we just ran a story last week that showed, which has been shown time and time again, that advice firms over 50 advisors tend to become less profitable and also on average have made losses. And, you know, those numbers are a bit skewed because those bigger firms tend to also be investing a lot into like future acquisitions and things like that but do you think that the the scale of these large advice firms makes it a lot more risky and difficult to carry on in the long term um i think there's certainly something in that i mean aberdeen is also very tricky because what they did was they started from a large cost base um with a lot of high salaries um and that's unfortunately is not the typical way for um advice businesses to grow. They usually start out quite small and then grow out. Um, whereas Aberdeen was trying to desperately cut costs while acquired businesses, which is quite a hard thing to do really. Um, so it, it sort of makes sense. Uh, one of the reasons for Aberdeen not doing so well might be that they put their own people to run the advice businesses. And the factor there might've been cost, might've been the costs of hiring new talented advisors or um, who've been around the block a bit. And, and also that's quite interesting for the market as well, you know, a, a lack of talent. With so many advice businesses being bought up, you've got to assume that actually the well of talent may dry up. Um, of course, consolidators will say, you know, there's always a lot of talent out there in advice businesses. I'm sure there are. But ultimately, we've got an aging um, advisor population as well as obviously an aging UK population. Um, so one would assume that that talent is finite. And with limited recruitment structures out there, I think it will be interesting to see moving forward. I think that's an interesting point. And just to touch on that is that, I mean, I think we've talked about this a lot, that in order to encourage new talent in the industry, you really need someone to put up the capital to offer more training and more opportunities and more outreach. And that should be the bigger advice firms, actually, because they have maybe the capital and the margins to do that. Um, but it's a bit surprising, maybe, that they, we hear a lot less about that than you would expect. And sometimes even it's the smaller IFAs who are saying, look, we have a lot of outreach in our community to try and encourage people to come into the business. And I, I would personally think it would be good to hear more from these larger advice firms about what they're doing to encourage new talent before mm. the advisors age out, really. Mm. We, and we see, you know, from some of the um, larger, you know, the, the, these I was going to say IFAs, you, they're national advice businesses that also, you know, they're completely vertically integrated, like, and have asset management arms like Quilter and SJP. They they run, well, certainly for SJP, hmm. they run an advisor academy where they where they train up people to be financial advisors and then just bring them into the business. But obviously that's a option that's only open to the businesses that can afford to run an advisor academy. Um, but that would be the ideal situation, right? Yeah, uh, and it's quite interesting, you know, um, we had on the podcast as well, Rob Lewis giving some fantastic insights into um, a lack of trust, actually, in the advice profession that we were talking about um, from a great article by Alicia um, just about on the FCA's new financial life survey. Um, and he sort of raised the interesting point that, um, you know, a lot of firms have cultural differences that are still said in the past. Um, and he linked that to scale of firm. 
um, but also with the scale of firm comes a massive recruitment drive, which is surely only to be encouraged. You know, the likes of SJP, Quilter, um, their academies are fantastic and really mm. need to be encouraged. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting point um, that we've reached in this sort of fragmented marketplace and seeing who's going to be able to drive it forward in the future. Mm. And I think we're seeing that in the platform space as well. As we mentioned, St. James's Place have had quite a few shakeups recently with their net inflows down and their share price dropping as their results were released a few weeks ago. And then there's that price cap that we discussed earlier. Um, I think a really interesting story that came out this month from our newest colleague, Victoria Bell, who is the senior reporter at New Model Advisor now. Um, it was a story about claims management firms which have been popping up targeting SJP clients. Essentially, Victoria's story talked about how uh, SJP's false complaints actually haven't gone up recently, but these claims firms are, in are targeting SJP more and more increasingly. Um, and I wonder what you guys think. Is it that SJP is an easy target for claims management firms because it has nearly a million clients across the UK? Or do you think that this could be actually a sign of something bigger? I mean, you would logically think that it's certainly... Um a thing of scale, right? As if you're a claims management firm's looking for claims, go for the largest business. Um, so maybe that's uh, there's something in that. Um, but it is interesting that these that these the rise in this, you know, as you said, there's no false, there's no particular rise in false complaints. So that's quite interesting. Well, I think it's an interesting one to look out for uh, and see if this kind of trend appears with other firms as well. But I think that naturally, because of its size, SJP will garner more interest and also to be honest, might just gain, might just garner more complaints. But if you look at that relative to its size, maybe it's not something to write about. Um, on a similar note, we put out an investigation about SJP advisors who gave out advice for people to transfer their pensions into the Caribbean Harlequin, Harlequin property scheme last uh, about 10 years ago. Um, and these advisors weren't at SJP at the time, but then they joined SJP as they left behind these complaints at their old firm. And these complaints are now fallen on the FSCS. So advisors are gonna to have to pay that levy of at least a few hundred thousand pounds. Um, SJP said that they gave these advisors a loan to pay out a small portion of the claims, but what do you guys think? I mean, should SJP be endorsing advisors that gave out bad advice and you know, is it their responsibility to pay the claims? I mean, where this is sort of a age old question, but I think it's coming up more and more recently, especially with the a few scandals that have come out over the past few years. Why should advisors be paying for these complaints? It's interesting. And as you say, it is an age old question, um, because as I mentioned before, you know, the increased regulatory burden on advisors um, makes their well, they would say makes their lives difficult. And it's why a lot of them don't have too favorable a view of the F of the FCA. Um, so that is that is quite interesting. Um, I mean, it reminds me a lot of, um, you know, Quilter's Lighthouse deal as well. Um, that was the massive thing, you know, of, of the sort of last few years where Quilter ended up paying the redress that really they were not. Well, some would say they were not completely responsible for. Um, they should have done their due diligence, but they paid out a lot of claims that really was just came out of nowhere for them, certainly. Um, so they certainly felt that it was right for them to do that um, and a very expensive thing to do as well. Um, so I think that is, I think that is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would add to that an example of, um, that we reported on last year of, um, essentially an advice firm that was fined millions of pounds by the FCA for, uh, you know, like 
the word, um, unsuitable pension transfer mm. advice. Um, a child of, uh, you know, one of one of these advisors then then set up, took the client bank, set up a new firm. Um, but, and it was within a network that was Beaufort, quite a well-known network in the UK. Um, but when Beaufort found out about this, the advisors immediately left the business, right? So w- whatever that means, whatever happened there. Um, so there are these firms that have been very uh, serious to take action when these things have been uncovered. And also like with the Quilter story um, that you mentioned, Zach, um, and Lighthouse, the FCA then didn't impose a financial penalty on Quilter, did they? Because Quilter had been so helpful in the in the proceedings to um, help pay off that that. Um, Definitely. And it's also a really important point about phoenixing that was raised um, on our podcast last week as well uh, with Rob Lewis. He was saying, you know, this is still going on, very much still going on. The legacy of British Steel is still here and yet phoenixing is still going on, Yeah, um, which the FCA obviously are very keen to clamp down on. Alicia, sorry, can I ask you a question on this? Um, has Was the FCA, do you know if they were aware of this at all were they contacted or have they got involved just because of what we spoke about i'd be very interested to know what they think about this where you know these advisors have joined a big i actually don't know the okay. fca's opinion on this what their role in this mm-hmm. but I, I mean i do know that you know they had dozens of complaints about against their old firm and mm. then the firm failed on the FC, fscs mm-hmm. but i think that what was really perhaps not noticed by the regulators was the fact that they moved to another firm while still having people working at the new firm who were involved actively in the old firm. So there was a bit of overlap, which is mm. leaves a bit of a question mark on it. Mm. Um, but no, I don't know the FCA's involvement, but I think in all in all, it really begs the question of these large firms who have such trusted brands. I mean, mm. they've, they've spent decades building up these brands and as an individual consumer, you go to St. James's Place, for example, because you trust the brand, you've heard the name. Mm. So you have a duty of care to clients and, and consumers. And I think that there's really important that you do due diligence on all new people that you recruit, even if you have thousands of advisors, for example, like say some of these networks, mm. because if you're giving them your branding, you should be responsible, not just for what they've done while they're with you, but for what they've done before. And I think maybe that's an interesting question. For example, your example, Nicola, with the Beaufort group, it's great that they took that action immediately, but also why was that allowed to happen in the first place? And I think, you know, everyone makes mistakes, everyone misses things, but when you're an advice sperm on such a large scale, there's more of a question of, okay, but are you allowed to make those mistakes? Mm. And and I think, you know, a lot of people would say it's very simple to look somebody up on the FCA register and see where they've worked previously and, you know, find out why they stopped working there and things like that. Mm. Um, you know, we've heard that argument before. So it does it does beg a question to these to these larger firms about, you know, they have responsibility at some point in that in that timeline for sure. Um, well, that seems like a great note to end on. You've been listening to The Advice Show with myself, data reporter Alicia Hagopian and senior investments reporter Nicola Blackburn. For any questions, please feel free to tweet us at New Model Advisor or email us at nmateam at citywire.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Alicia.